Amen. If you have a copy of God's Word, would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 7? As you're heading there, I'm actually going to bookmark it because we're coming back. But I want to start in one verse in Genesis chapter 3. But you can go ahead and find your way there to 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, I want to remind you, if, if you are a guest with us today, you're here on a unique day where we are wrapping up a series that we have called One Flesh, God's Design for Intimacy. And uh, we've been talking about sex and intimacy in God's design and why that's important to talk about that and the dangerous distortions that exist in our culture regarding God's design for sex and intimacy. So today we find ourselves really in the heavier part of that, talking about the dangerous distortions that exist today within our culture. But I do want to say if you missed last week's message, I certainly encourage you to go online and, and listen to it because it is foundational for what we're talking about today. So, you know, it's just one of those fears that pastors have sometimes, like you may have wandered in here today as a guest, you may be here unexpectedly today and showed up and you're going to hear this message and think, wow, this, this is kind of crazy, but without last week, I think maybe uh, you, you might be lost a bit. So I want to encourage you to go back and listen to that, but at the same time, let me just kind of catch you up with the Cliff Notes version of what we said last week. Last week we realized and through God's word saw that God created sex, that sex was actually his idea, and that sex is awesome. It is a great gift that God has given us when it is used within the healthy boundaries that the Lord has given us, one man and one woman inside of a covenant marriage. In that context, sex is a great blessing. But I want to read to you from Genesis chapter 3 because I want you to notice from the very beginning of creation the enemy's tactic of deception. Here in Genesis 3 we have recorded the fall of mankind. Uh, last week we were in Genesis 1 and 2 talking about the creation narrative. And if you remember God created everything in the world including Adam and Eve, including sex. And the world was perfect. God saw it and it was good. Can you imagine walking around physically in the presence of the Lord, hanging out and talking in the cool of the garden as the Bible describes it in chapters 1 and 2? It's pretty phenomenal. But here in chapter 3, we see Satan coming in the form of a serpent to tempt the first humans. I don't know why I had trouble saying the word serpent, but there you go. I just don't like snakes at all, so there you go. I just don't even want to say that word. But here's what... Satan said in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 3, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Satan said, Did God actually say? Is that really what God said? These four words, did God actually say, is really the question that is at the heart of the fall of mankind. Satan made Adam and Eve question God, question his boundaries, doubt his care for them, doubt his plan for their life. If God really loved them, why would he hold back this one fruit from this one tree? And if you have a church background, you know how this ends, right? They take the fruit that God had commanded them not to, and we have the fall of mankind. Sin enters the world and fractures God's perfect creation. And you and I still today are facing and living in the consequences of that fall. 
But what's wild today is that these same questions and really this same lie is being thrown at us today by a very real enemy. In fact, it's the same enemy that came in the form of a serpent all the way at the beginning of creation. So as we look at the word of God last week and even today, we'll see this again. God has a very clear design for sex and intimacy. His word is loud and clear from the mouth of Christ, from the pages of scripture. We see that God has designed sex and intimacy to work within the boundaries. Husband and wife, a great gift to be used for his glory and our good. And he saw that it was good. And it's to be used within these very clear, defined boundaries. But what the enemy says to us today is, did God actually say that? Did God really say that? In fact, a whole generation of people who would identify as Christ followers, who would say they're believers, are growing up today questioning the biblical sexual ethic. It's not at all uncommon to hear people say things like, well, you know, love is God. By the way, it's the opposite of that. God is love. You can't try to define almighty God by our culture's definition of love. That's just for free. But God is love. And people say, well, if God is love, certainly he wouldn't want me to be unhappy and not be able to be in love. He wouldn't reject my same-sex attraction. God wouldn't want me to pretend to be a gender that I don't feel like I actually am. Or or doesn't God want me to be happy? And this person that, that I'm married to doesn't bring me happiness, but this person who's not my spouse truly makes me happy. And sometimes this distortion goes beyond just our emotions and our feelings. Sometimes it's doing what Satan actually did here in Genesis chapter 3. Because what Satan did, a tactic that he employed in the garden, and then he employed in the desert with Jesus, is twisting and manipulating the words of God. And in our culture today, we're living in the last 15 years in one of the times of the most wild theological change in recent history where there are a group of liberal scholars who have attempted to erase and explain away the biblical sexual ethic. In fact, a young man from right here in Wichita, Matthew Vines, wrote the original book that started a lot of this called God and the Gay Christian. And in this book, Vines claims to be a Bible-believing Christian. He even claims to believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, which means there is no error in the Bible. And what he does in this book is goes on to explain that this has all been a big misunderstanding for the last couple thousand years. And that actually the Bible does not have a problem with homosexuality in the context of our modern culture. Friends, it's clear that the devil is still whispering in the ears of our culture. And I would argue that those whispers are turning into shouts today. Did God actually say Friends, I want us to see and recognize the simple truth of God's word today. And I want us to just really lovingly confront some of the distortions of the biblical sexual ethic in our world today. Can I say, before we dive into this text, uh, what we said last week is abundantly clear and true again today. That this all begins and ends with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can talk very openly and honest about sin in our culture 
because if you're here at Crossroad almost every week, we talk very openly and honestly about our sins that we're dealing with on a weekly basis, don't we? Like, if you're a guest with us, just by a raise of hands, have you been here in the last six weeks and been convicted about something? Raise your hand. All right, only four of you. Great. <sighs> I am doing a fantastic job. All right. We're going to talk about conviction next week. What I want to tell you is that it's really easy to talk about other people's sins, right? And can I tell you, you really prefer that, right? Like, I, I could rock this sermon out. We could talk about the, the biggest distortions of sexual ethics in our culture, and y'all would be like, thank you, Pastor, for having the courage to do that. Can I tell you what it actually takes courage to do? Address the sins that you're dealing with. Because you don't send me happy emails after those. So I'm just going to start preaching before I get in trouble. <laughs> what I want to tell you, though, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ means that we can really openly and honestly say, hey, this is a sin according to the scripture, but there's grace and there's forgiveness, right? So, so we have to start there with saying that we can talk openly and honestly about sin because there's no guilt and shame for those who are in Christ. So we're going to talk about some things that likely many of you in this room struggle with today. But I want you to hear that the gospel of Jesus Christ convicts us of sin with love. You know the Bible says that it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. It's his kindness today that may make you feel a bit uncomfortable. So with all that said, let's go to the word of God. Just two verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Let me turn there, that would help. It says this, Now concerning the matter about which you wrote, and this is a quote here, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So let's stop there for just a second. Some of you are like, wow, he didn't even make it through one verse. But what I want to tell you is this is basically him quoting a letter that he received. We don't know what's in that letter, but they had said this statement to him. So he said, now concerning the statement that you wrote to me, and he quotes it, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And now he continues, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Let's pray and ask for God's help today. Lord, we do come to you with many thoughts swirling in our heads and our hearts. I, I know I say that for me, and I just believe that my brothers and sisters here are dealing with that same thing. When we talk about issues like this, it brings up so much, Lord. It brings up trauma. It, it brings up sins. It brings up struggles. And God, I just pray that by your grace, you would use this message to bring healing, that you would bring, use this message to bring truth, and God, that your grace would rule and reign over this entire message today. So we thank you for what you're going to do. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, I do want to just briefly mention that I was helped in my preparation this week by some notes that I took while listening to a sermon from Pastor Robbie Gallaty, uh, Long Hollow Church in Tennessee, a few years ago. So uh, you'll hear me quote him directly in a few minutes, but also uh, some of our students that are hanging out in here, you might remember a message that I wrote and delivered to you a couple of summers ago. I'm sure you do. It was uh, stuck out in your heads and your hearts. And, uh, Based on the, the hands that were raised a few moments ago, I'm sure uh, it had great effect. 
but I, I want to just say that, that God's word is as true today as it was a couple years ago when we talked about it then, and I, and I believe God has a word for us. There's a bunch happening in 1 Corinthians 7. Like, if you read all of this later, you're going to be overwhelmed by everything you find. There's this passage where he says that a husband and wife should not use sex as a manipulative tool, that they're not to withhold themselves from one another. That's in there. And then later on, it talks about single people and addresses them. And there is so much happening right here in this text. And But within these first two verses, I think we find all the foundation we need to talk about what we need to this morning. If you remember last summer, we spent a few weeks in 1 Corinthians as a church family, and we talked about the fact that Corinth was a culture that was absolutely obsessed with sex. In fact, in the city of Corinth, if you were to be walking down the main streets, if you looked up literally at the pinnacle of the city, almost from wherever you were at, if you looked up, you would see a temple that was built for the false goddess called Aphrodite. And historians tell us that this city was full of cult prostitutes. That, that somewhere, and historians kind of use different numbers, and uh, just like pastors, they're prone to exaggerate a bit, but somewhere from several hundred all the way up to possibly a thousand prostitutes wandered the streets of Corinth constantly. Men and women, and, and tragically even boys and girls who were paid to have sex as part of this pagan worship ritual. So sexual promiscuity was literally baked into the fabric of Corinthian culture. But something was changing at the point where we are reading this letter. And what was that something that was changing? The gospel of Jesus Christ had come to Corinth. People were being saved. People were giving their lives to Christ. And in fact, it's reasonable to assume that some of these prostitutes had come to Christ and are sitting in these house churches with believers. God is doing an incredible work. So as the gospel is permeating this sex-obsessed culture, the people naturally begin to have some questions. And we don't have a copy of the letter that the Corinthians sent Paul, so we don't really know what their questions were. But seeing this quote in verse 1, apparently some were suggesting that they should just refrain from sex altogether as a believer. And Paul makes it clear that this isn't the case. Can I get an amen? amen. All right, some of you. Some of you were not expecting that. But from these questions, whatever they were, I, I think Paul's response, I'm so thankful that God gave us this in his word, a really super clear and helpful call to a biblical sexual ethic. So there's a reminder here in this text of God's clear design for intimacy, and that's really our first truth, a reminder of what we said last week. Sex is one biological man and one biological woman inside a godly marriage. That is God's design for sex. Verse 2 said, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife. Each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. That is the CSB's translation. Of that. This is as clear as it can be. But, but I want you to notice here, even in this text, Paul very clearly identifies the genders. We have clear pronouns here. Husband, he, wife, her. And the descriptions of these relationships are he, husband, her, wife. These are God-given roles, and by God's design, this is how marriage is to work. Now, I just have to tell you that these last few sentences of the message right now would absolutely confuse somebody if they listened to this sermon like 15 years ago. That we even have to kind of stop and say, hey, these genders are here in the Bible, and they are defined by God. 
But in a world where our culture has defined gender as changeable and fluid, not linked to biological sex, it is important for us to say God created them, male and female. And that biblically speaking, your biological sex is your God-assigned gender. These are not two different things. And if that offends you for me to say that today, you need to know that I'm speaking from literally thousands of years of history. And up until the last couple of decades, in fact, really the last seven to eight years, this would not be controversial. It would almost be confusing for me to have to stop and talk about this. But today, just the statements I've made right now have ruined my opportunity to replace Jimmy Fallon as host of The Tonight Show. It's over. It's over. I am canceled before it even begins. But it's important for us to declare that God created men and women with biological sex and God-defined gender roles. And those roles really take place within the nuclear family, husband and wife. These are good. These roles are not oppressive. They are not symptoms of the patriarchy. Sex, gender, husband, wife, these are God-assigned roles that we should embrace and that Christ followers, we ought to reject the nonsense of our culture that seeks to separate sex and gender and separate these roles that God has created for men and women. But I also want to say today that if you are struggling, if you're confused about your identity, I, I want to just say that, that this is very, very much a new concept that has come in the last several decades where your identity is formed and shaped by the way you express yourself sexually. This is something that if you go like 100 years ago, people are going to be confused if you say, quote unquote, I identify as fill in the blank. Can I just tell you biblically how you should identify? Your identity is not found in your sexuality. Your identity is not found in your sexual preferences. Your identity is found in Christ. And the gospel of Jesus Christ that has saved you and calls you, that is where you find your identity. Can I tell you something though, church? We have been good at screwing that up since the very beginning. You know where I tend to find a lot of my identity? Not through sexual expression, but can I tell you that a lot of my identity is found in what happens here in this church. My identity is pastor. When this church is doing poorly, you can probably find me and I'm probably doing poorly too. Why? Because I find my identity in what I do instead of who I am in Christ. And you likely do the same thing. Whether it's success, whether it's success of your family, whether it's your health, we find our identity in all kinds of other things. So we fall into that same trap. We fall into the same struggle. But your identity is in Christ. If you're a Christ follower, then you should hear and respond to his word and who he says you are. Not not who your feelings say you are, not what your therapist says you are, not the culture, but God's word and finding our identity in him is what defines us. Now, A brief aside that I think is pretty important here. There are many who would say, well, Rusty, when you talk about identity and you talk about gender and homosexuality and these things, Jesus didn't really have anything to say about that. It's very popular today, friends, to hear that kind of phrase. I I saw a, uh, a, a, what the kids call a TikTok. I thought it was a clock. I was, uh, anyways, I don't see any videos here, but... It's like some, some liberal priest who has a sign and he's like, what Jesus said about transgender issues. And he flips it around, it's blank. 
What Jesus said about abortion, and he turns it around and it's blank. What Jesus said about, and it's like, people say, well, Jesus didn't say anything. But here's what I want to read to you very clearly from Matthew chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. So, again, there's a whole crowd out there that acts like Jesus basically walked around and said, love God, love people. The rest of everything is just cultural stuff. You don't need to fool with it. But listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 19. Haven't you read that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And Jesus also said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. He's talking about God's design for sex and intimacy, quoting Genesis 2, 24 that we quoted last week. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So Jesus himself says marriage is one man and one woman, male and female, one man and one woman becoming one flesh in one marriage for one lifetime. This is the biblical model for marriage and sex, directly from the mouth of Christ. So back to 1 Corinthians 7. The first line of verse 2 is so important because he says, because sexual immorality is so common... And then what he does is go on to lay out the same truth that Jesus did, God's good design for sex and intimacy. So don't miss what Paul is doing. He's saying you guys live in a culture that is super messed up. Like everybody has these perverted, crazy ideas of what sex is and how sex should work. You even have a whole goddess that's all about that sex life, and it's mess. So because it's a mess, because sexual immorality is so rampant, you as the people of God must hold up the ideal biblical design for sex and marriage and intimacy. Because the culture is crazy, our call is to exalt and lift up the God-ordained biblical model for sex and intimacy. So that's what we've spent the bulk of these two weeks doing But I also want us to spend a few minutes this morning warning about the dangerous distortions that exist in our culture today. Because the fact of the matter is, some of these distortions, even those of you who are Christ followers, who live in this culture and attend church and are trying to seek the Lord, can get sucked into this so easily if you're not careful. The word sexual immorality comes from the Greek word porneia. Obviously, that's where we get the word pornography, images or writing that stimulates sexual immorality. But porneia, sexual immorality, is literally defined in this way. Any sexual activity outside of a godly marriage is sexual immorality. And I said this last week, it's shocking to some of you to even hear that, even those of you within the church, because we just don't talk about it a lot. But any sexual activity outside of marriage is sinful. So, so couples who are dating, you need to know that if you're engaging in sexual activity, you're outside of God's design for sex. Couples who are living together, if you're not married, you should not be having sex. Homosexuality is outside of God's design. All and any of these activities are sin in the eyes of God when not within a God-ordained marriage. So listen, as Christ followers, here's what the text says. Flee from sexual immorality. In a culture that is seeking to normalize and advance sin in our culture, the word of God is going to say run from that, flee from it. Go up a few verses into chapter 6 starting in verse 18. 
First Corinthians 6, starting in verse 18, it says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you from who you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We said last week that we actually glorify God when we enjoy and practice sex within the boundaries that he's given us. But Paul says very clearly, the first words out of his mouth in that section are flee sexual immorality. Church, I love you, but we have to talk about this today. In a world that has embraced and promoted sexual immorality, we as the people of God must be different than our culture. And some of you may think already, like, well, pastor, I'm already doing that, but here's what I need to tell you. Statistically, in a group of people this size, some of you are in an adulterous relationship. Some of you are cheating on your spouse. Some of you are in emotional affairs that are opening the door to sexual immorality. Some of you are engaging in homosexual acts. Some of you are struggling today with an addiction to pornography. And I just want to tell you, flat out, plain as I can tell you today, that this is doing damage to your soul in a real way. And if you're married, this is destroying your marriage. Verses 18 through 20 are very clear. And and I want you to hear me when I say this, y'all. There is not like a ranking of sins. You've heard this probably if you have a church background that sin is sin. And while that's true, you're either a sinner or you're perfect and holy before God because of the truth of the gospel. But here's the reality of what verses in 18 through 20 say is that these sins, sexual immorality, does something to you that affects a lot of different areas of your lives. We talked about this last week, the way God has designed sex to work, our brains, the chemicals that are released, our hearts and our bodies are designed to use sex to bond us one to another and our distortions of sex are destroying our ability to be intimate with each other other. I want to be careful to say this as clearly as I can. All of these distortions are dangerous and sinful, and we should flee and run away from them. But this is what concerns me today. I think a lot of you would say, well, pastor, that whole list you threw out there earlier, I'm not any one of those, so I'm good, but I'm glad you're saying it because some of these other people are sinners. This is what we do. Yet I just want to lovingly push back on you and say that I think in our culture, even people who would consider themselves devout, righteous, and holy, allow way more porneia into your home than you realize. If you're watching just about any television today, you have pornography in your home. Sex is everywhere on television. Art devices, social media, TikTok, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Students and adults alike, hear me when I say this, pornography, sex on screen will ruin your ability to be physically intimate with your spouse. And when I say pornography, it doesn't just have to be nudity and explicit sex scenes. It's those 30-second sex scenes that you just explain away and rationalize away in your favorite primetime drama. It's the implied sex of the PG-13 movies that you watch. It's not just explicit pornography, but at the same time, y'all, we can't ignore the blatant use of explicit pornography in our culture. It's everywhere. 
the majority of you sitting in this room right now have a device in your pocket that within 10 seconds from right now, you could be watching explicit graphic pornographic material right here in this room right now and even using the church's Wi-Fi to do it. And we wonder why our culture is in such a catastrophic condition. The results of this really are, that sounds extreme, but they're catastrophic. Even in the church, since uh, groups like Gallup and Barna, you may be familiar with those names, started conducting polls and doing research, asking questions, trying to gauge the effects of pornography in our culture. What's startling is that the number of people viewing and addicted to pornography in our world and in the church have been mirrors of each other. People in the church are in lockstep with people in the culture, and unfortunately, In our modern day, especially with younger adults, pornography is not even seen as problematic. Listen to these statistics. Among adults 18 to 24, 96% of people asked do not think porn is negative. Nine out of 10 teenagers agree. And though pornography has long been considered a male problem, one in five young adult women admit to watching pornography regularly. Unless you think this is just a young people problem, the number of older adults watching pornography is shockingly high and growing year by year as they learn how to do technology. Some of y'all couldn't even turn on a printer 10 years ago, but now you have a smartphone and you can do more than you ever thought you'd be able to, including finding your way to places you shouldn't. I want to read you a quote from Rod Dreher from his book, The Benedict Option. Dreher says this about pornography. The moral and spiritual damage from porn use should be obvious. Porn dehumanizes and it destroys the image of God in the faces of its performers. In turn, it trains its users to see others as depersonalized objects for sexual pleasure. It destroys the connection between sex and love. Porn addiction turns into a vicious cycle. Neuroscientists have discovered that porn has absolutely devastating effects on the brain. The more you use pornography, the more you have to use it. And to get the same dopamine hit, the same pleasure, you have to find something crazier. Porn literally rewires your brain. And guys, they're they're finding research that says teenagers right now, their brains are being shaped in ways that are damaging, that we really, it's off the charts. We don't even know what the long-term effects are going to be. And the tragic effect of this is that ultimately it makes it difficult for people to be aroused by actual human beings. You want to ruin your sex life? Single adults, students in the room, do you want to ruin your future sex lives? Get addicted to porn. Men who should be at their peak sexual prowess are struggling with impotence today. Like when I was younger, like all of the Viagra commercials were like old people in bathtubs on the hill, which I'm not sure how that works. (laughs) Whatever works for you, I guess. Uh, That was not in my notes. But, but just real talk, y'all, ha- have you noticed that the erectile dysfunction commercials, the people, the actors are getting younger and younger and younger? It's because pornography is literally re- we rewiring our brains. Because pornography is often done in secret and hurried moments, it wires you and affects you in a physiological way that affects your sexual performance eventually. 
If you're shocked that I said that, you should have seen what I literally have marked out in my notes that my wife said I couldn't say. (laughs) And I share this with you not to be crass, but to hopefully help you understand, especially young adults who statistically believe otherwise. Pornography has a real significant negative effect to you presently, but also in the future. So, So men, husbands, women, wives, pornography is robbing you of the joy of sex and intimacy. And again, let me say, I'm not just talking about hardcore nudity, straight up pornography. I'm talking about all of the things that you let into your life. Trashy romance novels, sexualized television shows, the ads that you see on social media and stay too long on. Robbie Gallaty defines porneia in this way. Giving your affection or sexual attention to anyone or anything other than your spouse. Church, listen to me. This is something we've got to talk about. And I recognize that this is uncomfortable, but I also know that statistically speaking, pornography is probably the number one sexual dysfunction and sexual distortion that this room deals with. And I just want to lovingly tell you, it has real consequences. It's hurting your marriage, your present marriage or your future marriage. It's hurting your soul. It's hindering your ability to enjoy this good gift of intimacy that God has given us. So the call of this text is to flee sexual immorality. And there's all these other distortions too that we've mentioned and alluded to throughout the message. But, but I want to end today by reminding you of the gospel. Because some of you right now are, man, I just know. Guys, I've, I have been in those seats hearing messages throughout my life that hit me like a bullseye. And when that happened, can I tell you what you're doing right now? Brave face, look forward, straight face, no reaction. And the devil has given you all the best tips for riding this storm out this morning. The devil wants your marriage to stay messed up. The devil wants you to stay living in your secret shame and guilt. But here's what I want to tell you this morning, friends. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings real freedom. Jesus Christ looks your worst sin directly in the eyes and he still says, I love you. The deepest, darkest sin in your life was nailed to the cross where Jesus Christ took the punishment that you and I deserved. And he took that sin and that shame and that guilt and that spiritual death to the grave. But three days later, he rose again so that you and I could have new life and you and I could have real victory over the sins that rule and reign in our lives. For some of you, it's time today to say, you know what? I'm done letting sin have the seat of the throne of my heart. It's time to let Christ have his rightful place. And can I tell you, this isn't a cure-all. So so it's not like you need to come to the altar and cry and then you're not going to struggle with sexual immorality anymore. Y'all, we live in a messed up culture. This is going to be thrown in our faces and thrown at us nonstop as long as we live on this fallen earth. 
those of you in this room who may be struggling with same-sex attraction, those of you in here who are struggling with pornography, those of you who are in adulterous relationships or maybe are considering getting an adulterous relationship right now and you don't know how to get out, I just want to tell you, if you're thinking there is no way God loves me with what I've done, I want to tell you, friends, you're wrong. He, that's, that's the whole reason we have this place. That's the whole reason we are here today is because there is no sin that is too deep that our Savior cannot save. And that's the only reason anybody sitting in this room beside you is here. There's nobody in this room better than you today. We're all here by the grace of Jesus Christ. So so here's what that means. It's time to start walking free. It's time to stop living in the dark and it's time to bring our sin to the light and let God by his grace begin to root sexual immorality out of our lives. Here's what I know. I'm gonna be sitting right over here in a minute and I would love to pray with you and talk to you if you need to pray and talk today. But, But here's what I know about you. Like we haven't even talked about sex and I've asked people to come forward and you're like, nah, I'm good. Very likely, none of you are going to come up. I want to tell you, if you want to, I'm going to be right there, and I would love to pray with you, and I can just tell you right now that this room is going to be supportive of you as we pray with you. And I want to tell you, if you are looking at people say, I wonder what's going on in their lives, then you need to be down here and repent of your religious pride and your foolishness. But here's what I want to tell you, because I know that, that likely the enemy's running that play, and you're probably not going to come forward. You're probably not going to come talk to me this morning. What I want to tell you is you need to have a talk with somebody this week. You need to email me. You need to grab a brother or sister in Christ and say, we need to talk. You need to sit down with your spouse. You need to bring these sins into the light. Because here's what I believe. I truly believe today that God could use a series on sex to bring revival to our nation. Because revival doesn't start with a cool church doing cool church things. Revival doesn't start in the church house. I believe revival starts in your house. When God's people repent of the struggles and the sins in their lives, God stands ready to start doing some real work in his people. Some of you just needed to be reminded in this two weeks that, that sex is not something that just belongs to you and your spouse. But sex is God's idea. So we need to consider that and talk about that. Sex is a good thing when practiced within God's boundaries. You need to be reminded of that today. But some of you need to be reminded that if you're operating outside of those boundaries, there's grace. And Jesus can change you through the power of the gospel. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Lord, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for the way your word just lays this out here for us. God, I pray that in a culture that worships sex, that we instead would worship you and that we would follow your design for intimacy in such a way that points us, our families, and even the world around us to the goodness of our God. I pray that as we sing and think about the gospel here in these moments, Lord, that you would just um, take away the enemy's attempts to bring guilt and shame to our heads and our hearts, but instead, Lord, we would even now be able to rejoice and worship in freedom because of the good news that this gospel brings us. We thank you for what you're going to do in this time. We love you. Church, I want to invite you, if you would, just stand in an attitude of prayer and worship.
And uh, we want to just unashamedly, unawkwardly worship the Lord. Just like last week, it's like, so what are we supposed to do now? Sing? Yes. That's what we're supposed to do. We can hear difficult, challenging messages and then remember and sing of the goodness of our God and his gospel.